Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm your host, Charnel, and welcome to part two of the Stephen Smith Boy in the Cellar case. If you are just starting here, hop back an episode to part one because you've literally missed the first 13 years of this man's life and from this point on won't make a whole lot of sense to you. So the last time that I was in your ear canal, Stephen was in the cellar, but a woman and a police officer had just opened up the cellar door and told him to come out. He was very apprehensive to listen to the woman because his dad is literally standing right there, remember Albert Fionn face, screaming at the police officer that they had no right, that these were his children, and that he wants them to leave. Well, sorry, buddy, doesn't work that way. So the woman is saying, is holding her arms out, saying, you're safe now. It's okay to come out. Now, just know, as a note, you guys, children never think it's safe. They don't trust you. They are terrified because their abuser is right there screaming at the police officer. And just the sound of their voice is triggering for them and terrifying for them. When someone has been abused to the length that Stephen has, You think that your abuser is capable of supernatural powers with the ability to just take out everyone around them and take you out too. So this is initially Stephen's reactions. He's very hesitant to walk up those steps, but he does, and he doesn't look at his dad. He looks straight ahead. He's confused. He doesn't know what's going on, but no one else is in the home. His mom's not there. That Mary woman from episode one who just showed up in the backseat of his, uh, car the last psychiatrist appointment isn't there um, and his siblings aren't there either he gets into this vehicle now he recalled that this woman was very businesslike but when he gets into the vehicle there's another woman in the driver's seat and she had a kind face and she was a lot like a lot softer in her approach and she was explaining to him that they were going to um, he doesn't have to live in the cellar anymore and that he is going to, or they are taking him someplace safe. Now, at this point in time, I'm going to give you a trigger warning for this episode. The first episode was a trigger warning to physical and emotional abuse. This episode is unfortunately riddled with a lot of descriptions of sexual abuse. So if that is difficult uh, for you, please uh, skip those parts or skip the episode. Now, Stephen and all of his siblings had been placed in care, but they'd been placed separately. It would be a long time before Stephen would learn this, but his siblings were actually placed with Mary, the woman that his father told him was the housekeeper, and he actually said it in front of her. Remember that? Well, Mary was actually his fucking wife. So she's sitting there in the back seat listening to her new husband Describe her as the housekeeper? Like, excuse me? Who who does this? 
who does this and just sits there? And, you know, maybe Mary had low self-esteem and just didn't know what she was getting herself into. But fucking A, man. So it was not easy for Stephen to leave with these strangers and knowing in his bones that this would be the last time that he would ever see that house and that cellar again. He didn't know where he was going. He thought maybe it was another cellar. Remember that voice that I told you he had that spoke to him in the third person? Well, that voice is literally saying, what if your dad sold you? What if he sold you and you're going someplace worse? I I mean, to him, he can't really think of anything worse than living in a cellar and in the outdoor toilet like he had been going to. But his mind and his body shook with all that it was taking in. He is completely discombobulated at this point in time. He can't predict anything, at least in the cellar. He knew how things were going to go. He knew what the routine was. His world is now completely flipped upside down. Even though it wasn't good, it was abusive. He at least could predict it. Our minds and our body need to find a state of stabilization. I think I've talked about this before even, called homeostasis. When we're unable to interpret things in our environment and and predict what's going to happen next, then our mind goes into a state of chaos and panic and anxiety, okay? We need that homeostasis. We need to be able to predict what happens next. Think about when you go into a restaurant and it's maybe the first time you've been in this restaurant and you're thinking, does the waitress seat us? Do I seat myself? Um, is the waitress going to bring our food? Is it a self-serve bar? Like, how does this work? We use cues in our environment, like signs, to figure that out, right? Because our mind is always searching for stabilization, for homeostasis. And otherwise, we are left feeling anxious and scared and, and nervous, maybe even a little gassy if you're like me, okay? So Stephen was scared because he was unable to predict what would happen next. At one point in time, he even found himself saying to the girls, and this is so normal, legitimately every child that I ever had to remove in my job has said this, that they want to go back because back is what is comfortable and what is known. And he found himself saying that. He couldn't believe he was saying it, but he found himself saying that and it was very normal. He even considered jumping out of the car at one point in time just to get away, get away from it all. But it, the other problem that he has is just the overwhelming um, invasion on all of his senses. You know, the sunlight is way, way, way bright for his eyes. It made him dizzy every time that he went into it. Um, they wouldn't tell him where he was going. They just kept telling him, they just kept saying, don't worry, you're safe now. And he kept saying that he was scared and and that he wanted to go back. So they end up going to this large red brick house that had big doors. It was called Ashley House at Aston Hall. And it was in, I think, I forgot to make note, but I believe it's in Derbyshire. And it was a holding unit for boys who had been sent from all over the area for various reasons. Okay. So when a staff member... Nice guy. He seemed nice anyway. Um, introduces himself and takes him to his own room. For the first time ever, Stephen gets his own room. He has his own window. He has his own bed, a real bed, not a thin mattress on cylinder on 
uh, cement cylinder blocks. I don't know why I keep calling them cylinder blocks, but you know what I'm saying, cement blocks. Well, immediately he walks over and he shuts the curtains because the light was way too bright and way too unfamiliar for him. He's not used to, he's used to a small room, but he's used to a small, dark, damp room. And the um, staff member was like, oh, he walks over and he's like, don't you, you know, don't you want these open? And he's like, please don't, no. And then under he remembered what his situation was and understanding came over his face and he kept the curtains closed for him. They gave him proper clothing and shoes for the first time ever, but he did not know how to tie his shoes. Now, he's only 13 years old at this point in time, but he hadn't learned yet how to tie shoes. So Colin, the knife staff member that brought them to him, showed him and said, you know what, you're a smart boy. You're going to pick this up. And just in a couple of times, he picked it up real quick on how to tie his shoes. Um, he also recalled that he got to bathe in a big tub, a proper-sized tub, with the proper temperature water for the first time. He got to experience what a fluffy towel felt like, and he was given his own pajamas for the first time, which he treasured those pajamas, and I don't blame him. I myself, who have never had to suffer through what he has, treasure a good, comfortable pair of pajamas. So I can't imagine what, at the age of 13, getting your first pair must have been like. So then when night rolls around and he, after he's done bathing and in his, in his jammies, he was given a toothbrush and told to go to the sink to brush his teeth. So he does. Well, think about this, you guys. What is usually hanging above a sink? A mirror. Stephen Smith was 13 years old and had never seen his own reflection. And this is the time where he does and he doesn't understand what it is at first. He's making movements up and down and a little startled and realizes that, that it's him. But he can't tell other people that. He's alone for just a minute while he's processing this and kind of doing these motions and is like, holy shit, who is this kid mimicking me in front of me? Well, then other boys start to come in and he does not know how to communicate with other children, Okay. They don't know that, so they're just treating him like any old guy, you know, any old kid, and it's like, hey, dude, come on, hurry up, right? He didn't want to draw attention to himself, so he just kind of looked away, but he realized that all of those boys, that he was looking at a reflection, that he was looking in a mirror because he could see those boys and then see in the mirror that it, it was the same person. So the next day, the staff member came into his room and said that he needed to go down to the main office. Now, he didn't know what the hell a main office was. And the fact of the matter is these staff members don't really know his full story. So they don't understand that they're giving him uneasy commands and that he he has no idea what's going on. Immediately, he was scared that he was being taken back to his father. You know, he had just had a nice night in a room all to himself that was warm for once and he was being treated right and he got food, real food. And then, and he had to walk down a set of stairs, which reminded him of the stairs that he would hear his father walk down in that cellar. And in the main office, he sees that same psychologist, Dr. Robinson, who had given him those assessments. And who he had told everything to. So 
the doctor had made the, made the proper re- reports, as he should have, and he had been responsible for getting Stephen removed from his abusive father. In this moment, they did take m- more time to do more intelligence test, tests and took more information on his family and his family situation. A week after being in Ashley um, House, he was introduced by Dr. Robinson to another doctor, Dr. Milner. Dr. Milner had Stephen draw for him, and he heard Dr. Robinson and Dr. Stephen, Stephen not Dr. Stephen, Dr. Robinson and Dr. Milner um, use words like hypercreative and advanced in intelligence. Dr. Robinson knew that Dr. Milner would find Stephen fascinating. And boy, did he. Dr. Milner smoked a pipe and wore a tweed jacket with those elbow patches on it, just like a stereotypical psychologist back from the 70s. And he met with Stephen regularly, and he was asking him questions about his abuse. He asked many times if his father had touched him sexually. Stephen reassured him each time that although he had sustained a lot of abuse, sexual abuse was not one of them. Stephen had to learn quickly how to acclimate with other children. He never told others his story, but he had learned about some of the other kids' stories. Some were there because they were abandoned, some were abused like him, and some were there because they couldn't stay out of trouble themselves. He had heard someone say regarding his case once that his siblings were fostered out, but he never was given to a foster home because he was too, quote, feral. He was explained later by a social worker that feral meant that he could not fit into a family because he didn't know what it was like to be a part of one. And at this point in time, Stephen hadn't displayed any sort of behavior that would, in my book, deem him feral, other than, yes, he did break out of his cellar, his imprisonment, to steal food because he was starving. So I would like some of these fuckheads to starve themselves just for a day and see if they don't break into a pantry the moment that they can get in front of food and engorge themselves too. I truly believe that they didn't do the proper assessments from a social work standpoint to even see if he would be fit for a family. Instead, they just threw him in a boy's home and assumed that this is where he's going to thrive. Now, Ashley House did have some perks because he got to watch TV, which he'd never experienced before. He soon became a fan favorite of Doctor Who, and he got his own room, which was different from the other boys because they all slept in like a large room together. It did make him feel like an outcast and almost like he was in the cellar again, and he didn't want to tell anybody as to why he was given his own room. He never told anyone about the cellar. He just said that he was there because his parents beat up on him. He kept quiet, and he watched what the other boys did to learn how to function. He didn't know how to tell time, so he learned how to connect the numbers on the clock with the activities that they would say. So if they would say dinner's at 4, he would know that when the hands were on the 4 and the 0, that meant it was 4 o'clock. Same thing with TV time. He taught himself how to tell time. Now, he was often taken to see Dr. Milliner at Aston Hall, by the social worker who saw him regularly. One of the things that Dr. Milner had him do was draw a lot, 
and he often drew very creative monsters. He was a gifted artist, and he had a lot of artistic talent. It was at this meeting that Dr. Milner tells him, you're going to leave Ashley House, and you're going to go stay in Aston Hall, and this is where you're going to be living now. He'd only been at Ashley Hall for a few weeks, but now here he is being displaced. And Aston Hall was not at all like Ashley Hall. In Aston, the rooms are locked everywhere. Anywhere that you have to go, a staff member has to lock and unlock the door. It was a type of hospital, a type that Stephen had never been in before. He had been taken to a mental hospital simply because the state did not think at the time that he would fit in anywhere else. His room was a large dormitory where there were 20 beds, and he was assigned to one. When he was given his bed assignment, he and a staff member were in that room, and he heard screaming coming from the outside. He looked out of the nailed-shut window to see the outside play yard, where he saw a large cage-like structure in the yard that had many people in it, people that were ranging from boys and men aged 13 to at least 30. Some were naked and openly masturbating. Others were wearing protective helmets because they were repeatedly slamming their heads against the cage. Others were just making noises and screaming. Some were wearing straight jackets. Of course, at the time, Stephen didn't know what any of that stuff was. The nurse came over and whispered in his ear, told him to watch himself, or he would end up in there like that, almost like it was a threat. Now, Stephen noticed that kids all over were given strong medications, and many of them had no expressions on their face. They were so heavily drugged, they couldn't feel for themselves or show expression or have any emotions. He had been taken to a mental hospital for experimentation by Dr. Milner, simply because his father had been one of Satan's groupies, and Dr. Milner had been fascinated by his brain. Now, I know Dr. Robinson seems like the hero, right? Because he's the one that he originally told his story to. He told the authorities. He got him removed. But there is a big part of me that wonders if he knew damn well that Dr. that that Stephen's case was so unique. And he knew that Dr. Milner liked to do experiments on children. It makes me wonder if he knew the extent of what Dr. Milner was capable of. And if he did, then he was just another villain in this story. Or maybe it's possible that Dr. Robinson had no idea of the harmful things that Dr. Milner was capable of and ends up doing, not only to Stephen, but other children as well. And it just so happens he he was a catalyst in placing not only Stephen but other children with Dr. Milner, thinking that the doctor was legitimately going to help them. I don't know. But it as all this shakes down, boy, it really makes you question. Now, while in Aston Hall, Stephen had some run-ins with a lot of the older boys. You know, you got to think, this is like the jungle. So you got the top of the food chain, you got the bottom of the food chain, and you've got to survive. Stephen is smart. He picked up on this. And 
Honestly, he wasn't scared of getting into fights with the older boys because, quite frankly, he had had the shit beat out of him so profusely by his anal-faced father that there's nothing that these punk little kids can do to him that's going to be worse than that. And sure enough, the first time that a bully comes up to him, wants to know where he's from, why he's there, and Stephen wanted no part of it. He wasn't going to tell him anything. The kid got mad, started punching him around. Well, his little punches had nothing on his gorilla father. So Stephen just let him wear himself out. Let the kid keep punching him. Until the rage built up inside of him. The kid had tired himself out. And he went all Muhammad Ali on him. And unleashed fury with the same intensity of a morning poo after the first sip of coffee hits. Y'all know what I'm talking about. This kid was not expecting this, and before you know it, they're a mess of fists and fury on the floor and two male staff nurses, who aren't really nurses at all, by the way. They're just people who took a job, um, come and pull them off from each other. Now, that sudden rage and the way that he beat up the biggest dude, biggest bully in Aston Hall basically made it so that he won all the next fights because he just became known as the weird kid whose parents beat up on him. And that was fine with Stephen because no one messed with him like that again. Now, Stephen did get to attend school on the Aston Hall grounds, and he loved this. He was gobbling up all the books that he could. Before long, he had literally read every book in the school library. And so the adults started bringing him in books that they were reading because he was so far advanced from the other children. You know, many of the other children that came to Aston Hall hadn't had the same rigorous studies and education that Stephen had. That might be the one and only good thing that that dumb fuck did for his son was give him an actual education and be able to keep his mind busy. So at, after he had read as much as he you know could, he had kind of taken, had a relationship with some of the staff members that weren't dickheads. They would bring him books that they enjoyed these, this was the first ever gift that Stephen had ever been given was a book and he was very appreciative and he protected those books with like with his life. He got to read things like The Hobbit, but he even started getting into kind of the occult, like things about witches and warlocks and whatever. And he didn't realize it, but he, through all this reading, he comes to realize that he was actually portraying the devil in his drawings for years without ever knowing what the devil was, who the devil was. And he had been doing it through the outlet, the creative outlet of his anger towards his father. Now, horrifically, as I had mentioned before, Dr. Milner liked to do experiments with different drugs and whatnot on chosen children in Aston Hall. But the abuse did not stop stop at drug experiments, okay? Now, at this point in, in life, Stephen had never heard music. And there was a staff member, Mr. Bradbury, who was really kind, and he wasn't like, he wasn't a jerk like the other staff, and he introduced him to music. He even gave Stephen a record player, 
a gift which Stephen had treasured more than his own life, music changed Stephen's life. He was hooked. He felt it in his soul. The words resonated with him like nobody on earth ever had. Now, the first song that he ever called that he ever heard was called "Race with the Devil," and the artwork on the front cover was similar to the artwork of his own mind. He fell in love with artists like Black Sabbath and um, um, "Race with the Devil" is by the Gins, and the words of the music were like his life in musical form. And it was just amazing to him that there could be something out there that could speak so deeply to him and seem to really understand him. Well, one day there was a headmistress who, for no reason, came up to him when he was minding his own business. And they're like in, um, they were at, it kind of was described like they were on a stage doing something with most of the other, the rest of the school. And this headmistress comes up and just slaps the shit out of his face. And he he was taken to the ground and so taken aback by it. He had no idea what he did. Of course, the voice in his head is saying, what have you done? He had no idea. Before he knows it, she strikes him again and then goes to do it a third time, but another staff member had actually stopped her. And all he heard was her mumbling that the headmistress had seen his drawings called them satanic, and that someone needed to beat the devil out of him. So she took it upon herself to do so. Stephen had never even had an interaction with her before. She simply decided, based on his arts, that he needed to be beat. Thanks, Brenda. That's super helpful. You think that this abused child needs to be more abused to get the devil out of him? I don't know if her name was Brenda. I was just using that as a generalization. If you're Brenda, I bet you're wonderful, and I apologize. But I would like to ask, who's the, who is the real devil in this situation? That mind frame, that way of thinking, God damn, I'm glad that I was born when I was. I wouldn't have survived these times. I got too much of a mouth on me. There is no way. So Stephen was so far advanced in intelligence and his studies that he was eventually eventually taken each day to a nearby school instead of the school at Ashton Hall because he just wasn't being challenged enough. This was a first for the school that none of the other children had been able to be sent to a, a local um, school before. And none were ever allowed to leave the grounds, especially not for school you know, purposes. And many of them were really far behind in their studies, actually. So he, the headmaster, um, doc, not the headmaster, that's in a minute, Dr. Milner, starts calling him his clever little boy. Now, let's talk about what Stephen learns through his small groups of friends that he has made in Aston Hall. He learns that most of the lads who were there had went to something called treatment. Now, when someone brought treatment up, everybody would go silent, and eventually he just had to ask because in his mind, nothing could be worse than 13 years in a cellar. And so he just kept asking, like, okay, come on, you guys. It can't be that bad. Like, what is treatment and what happens in there? Finally, one of the boys spoke up and said, 
He touches your knob, Steve. This was super hard for Stephen to comprehend because he had not only been subjected subjected to severe physical abuse and emotional abuse and neglect, but sexual abuse wasn't even on his radar of possibilities and certainly not in a schoolhouse for boys like he was in. They warned Stephen that if he was ever told that he couldn't have supper because he had treatment that night to watch out. Sure enough, within a couple of weeks of learning about the treatments, he was told by a staff member that he wouldn't be having supper that night because he needed treatment. That night, around 7 o'clock, Stephen was taken to a sterile-looking room. And this is where I'm going to give you a trigger, trigger alert. Trigger alert. I can never say it right the first time. So in this room, Dr. Milner and another staff member stripped Stephen naked. He had to lay on a table that had that was covered with rubber sheets, and they strapped him down. He then was given some sort of drug through his arm. There was a very big needle that went into his arm, and it hurt like hell. Then afterwards, a metal mask that had something on it that smelled terrible was placed over his face as Dr. Milner asked him questions about his life, about his abuse that he sustained, but mostly he asked him if his father had ever ever touched him sexually for being a bad boy. That's all Stephen can remember because then he was knocked out cold. Unbeknownst to him at the time, he was sexually abused by Dr. Milner and whatever staff he had helping him. The next day, Stephen recalls not feeling well and his bottom being sore. He also had welts where he had been beaten on his thighs and backside. backside. Now those he recognized because those are the same that he had gotten when he was in the cellar. This whole, now Stephen is angry. He was told that he was taken to a place of safety, and now he's just taken to another place of hell. Stephen ends up going to treatment at least once a week when he was at Aston Hall. There were stories of boys who died trying to escape Aston Hall and Dr. Milner's abuse, and those ended up to be more than just rumors. There were children that Dr. Milner killed in some of his experiments. The reason the children were not given supper at night is because the chemicals that Dr. Milner would use to render his victims unconscious would make the child vomit if they had something in their stomach. Stephen was a part of a select group of 20 boys who were subject to the frequent abuse, at least weekly. Like I said, some died because of the experiments, and the stories of how the children died were never really accurately relayed so it wasn't, it wasn't caught at the time. So this is where Stephen learns that there's other devils in the world besides his father. And in his mind, they were worse than his father because at least his father had never had any sexual desires to abuse him. None of the, quote, nurses were trained at all. Many of them had come from jobs like working in a tire factory, being a butcher, things like that, and just left those jobs for the job at Aston Hall because it paid better. After a while in Aston Hall, a social worker came to tell him that his mother had passed away. He showed no emotion because why the fuck should he care? He hadn't seen her since the day that he spoke to her for the first time, asking her when he could get out of that cellar, and she never came back. The social workers did think it was weird that he didn't have any remorse, but that just tells me that they didn't know his story. 
He always had a different social worker at each required visit anyway. He said they were always women. And he never really told them anything because, after all, they're the ones who put him there and told him that he'd be safe. What the hell did they know? He did recall that some inspectors came. And when that happened, the inspectors were always men. They were always in suits. And they knew when an inspection was coming up because the kids would have to clean the place to the point of being completely spotless. Now, they were always doing chores to clean like little slaves. But when the men in suits came, it was to the extreme. And all the staff members were huge dicks to them because they knew if Aston Hall's license got taken away, then everything is shut down. On May 17, 1976, after Stephen had been in Aston Hall for 16 months and receiving weekly treatments, he was told that he was being taken somewhere else. The state had placed him in a new placement. He was giddy, thinking that at least he wouldn't be subject to Milner and his treatments anymore. It was hard for him to say goodbye to his small group of friends. These are the first group of friends that he's ever made. But he was relieved to think that he wouldn't have to hear the screams of the mentally insane anymore and undergo any more treatments. His next placement was actually in a school. It was a school for boys. It wasn't a mental hospital. He was so excited to be getting out of the mental hospital and to be in a proper school. This school, this school, <laughs> this school was called St. William's. He met the headmaster, and what that's why I misspoke earlier and said headmaster. I also have to correct myself, too, because it's the headmaster at St. William's that calls uh, Stephen his bright little boy or something like that. Oh, his clever boy. That's what it is. Blech. His clever boy. So that was not Dr. Milner. That was um, the headmaster whose name um, is in my notes here. We're going to get to it in a second. So just a second. So he met the headmaster. He was explained that the school was run by an order of monks. Yes. Monks in the 1970s. What the fuck could go wrong here? Right, guys? Yep, yep, yep. So he was assigned to his house that he was assigned to was called St. George's. This place was like a campus. If you can picture this, St. William's was like a campus. They had different dormitories. His He was the one, like I said, he was in St. George's. They had a different um, dormitory or different building for the gym, for the cafeteria, for their classrooms. It was a vocational school. So each day during school, these children would rotate doing different vocations, okay? They even had like a whole farmer's vocation. So the whole point was to uh, acclimate these kids to society so that when they aged out of the system, they would have a skill that they would be hireable when they essentially hit the streets, right? So he was told by the instructor who kind of helped him settle in a little bit that if he just followed the rules, all would be well. Then um, the rules were really easy. Do your, your schoolwork, mind your business, no talking after lights out, and you'll get along just, just fine. There was even an art department and an engi engineering department, okay? So this place seems amazing to someone like Stephen because he just came from a mental hospital that he didn't belong in. To now he's in a legitimate school. He loves learning. Um, he recalled that when he was getting a tour of the place, 
He saw these kids making long sticks, and he didn't know what they were for. So his brain immediately went to, they must be making long sticks to beat people with. Because he had sustained so much violence in his life that to him, everything was a weapon and was probably used as a weapon. Weapon. Now, acclimating in St. Williams was a little bit different than Aston Hall because when people learned that he was from a mental hospital, they looked at him like he was a monster and they were scared of him. Even though this was kind of comical to Stephen because he's like, these kids are literally here because they are thugs off the street. They've done things that Stephen has never even dreamed of, like stolen vehicles before, robbed people before, gotten into fights, fist fights with people, you know, regularly before. Those are not things that Stephen has done. All Stephen has done is literally been abused, and that's why he's there. But since he came from Aston Hall, he came with with some sort of stereotype on him. And so people left him the hell alone because they literally thought that he was crazy. He also didn't help his case with this, though, because when he was in Aston Hall, he had met some other kids from a place called Rampton. Now, Rampton was also a a mental institute for boys, but this is where they gave children electric shock shock therapy treatments. And so when he met those boys, they had their head shaved because of the therapy, and they were definitely way more messed up than all of the boys in Aston Hall. So when he gets to St. William's and people find out that he's from Aston Hall, he's like, yeah, have you ever heard of Rampton? Well, they had all heard of Rampton. He's like, Aston Hall's connected to it. Just like one-upping everything so that all the bullies left him alone. And that is brilliant, and it worked. Just after two days of being at St. William's, he had learned that two boys, ages 10 and 12, had been killed trying to escape St. William's. Now, this baffled Stephen because... He is thinking to himself, why would you want to escape this place? At least here you're not being drugged and people aren't touching your knobs. You had freedom here. No one had to, a staff member didn't have to go in front of you and lock and unlock doors. You literally just had to go to your studies every day and at four o'clock it was dinner time and then you got free time. You could play football in the yard even. So to, to Stephen, this didn't seem so bad. So why would kids risk their life to try to escape this place? Well, he learned that those boys were trying to hide from the headmaster and that another child besides those two boys named George had recently hung himself because the headmaster, whose name was Brother James Carragher, um, he was actually a new headmaster at the time at St. Mary's, And there was a priest that they called the Black Spider had been sexually abusing these children. And so that's why they were trying to get the hell out of there. So the boys warned him, if you ever get taken to Brother James' office, you will not get out of that office until he's done things to you. Stephen was beside himself. He had thought for the first time ever 
that he was taken to a safe place? What are the chances that he could be removed from one hell, put in another hell, just to be put into another fucking hell? And then he's thinking, you know what? Perhaps a safe place on earth doesn't even exist at all. Because so far, he hasn't been shown that it does, that there is anything as a safe place. He's only ever known abuse. And of course, it has to happen to him again. He was picked by the headmaster, Brother James Carragher. And while in his office, he was raped repeatedly and forced to do things. It was not just the headmaster and the priest either. The headmaster would bring friends from his own personal life onto campus. He would have them watch the boys play football, which many times they did with their shirts off because they're boys, shirts and skins, right? And his friends would pick the boys that they wanted. Stephen even recalled a time when the boys were playing football and he was walking around a corner and saw the headmaster, Brother James, talking to some guy that he didn't know. It was one of his personal friends. And they were talking very crudely about one of the young boys that was out there playing football. And the friend said that that's who he wanted. He tried to warn that kid not that he was going to be called into the headmaster's office. And he wasn't able to warn him. And the next thing he knew, that kid had changed. He had been called into the headmaster's office. He had been sexually abused by Brother James and his friend. And that child was had never, never, ever played football outside again and um, was never the same again. So for Stephen, this was worse than Aston Hall because at least in Aston Hall, they were drugged and unconscious. Here at St. William's, they were awake, they were alert, and there was no escape. He tried to tell people. There were social workers. They were always women who would come and explain, you know, have to do their their monthly checkups, whatever. But he finally told them what was going on. And each time he was told that he's making up lies and just a troublemaker. And he was taken right back to to St. William's. One time he recalled that he took a girl out on a date. And she was walking back, um, there, and he was walking back because on the date, his father comes to pick the girl up, sees him, realizes that he's from St. William's and what that must mean, and refuses to give him a ride back home. So now he's got to walk. When he's walking, a police officer pulls up next to him and is like, where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to St. William's. And the officer's like, okay, I'll give you a ride. So he decides, this is my chance. I'm going to tell this police officer. So he does. Tells him everything. That they interfere with kids there. That they do things to them. That they make them do do things to the staff member. And that, you know, the whole department knew. or, or And that, you know, what was all the staff members seemingly knew. The officer was really sad and empathetic, but said, I know, son. But we're powerless to stop it. The whole police department knew what was going on at St. William's, but the school was run by the guise of religion. It is an order of monks, after all, and no one would believe that a group of priests and monks were sexually abusing teenage and preteen boys in the 1970s. So, in his book, Stephen calls St. William's a pedophile sweet shop, and I think that is a 
That's rightfully so. He even walked in on one of his own friends being abused, and the images of that coupled with what he had experienced is something that he says he will never get over. His time at St. Williams meant being called into the head mattress, head mattress, head master's office multiple times a week. When he was 16 years old, a social worker arrived to tell him that his father had been sick and passed away. Stephen was so full of anger, anger that he would never have the ability to take the bloody bastard out himself. He had survived on fantasies as a child of being big and growing strong and finally being able to kick his father's ass all the way out of this earthly plane the way that he did to him, and now he'd never get the chance. And because of him, he was stuck in a place where he was subjected to to sexual and physical abuse multiple times a week. Because, of course, the abuse wasn't just sexual. The headmaster, his friends, and the monk they called the spider would also beat these children while they were sexually abusing them. He just wanted his goal in life at this point in time is just to survive to an age where he can finally be released. And that day came when he was 17 years old. He had spent about two years at St. William's in total. He said he he spent two Christmases there. He, of course, had to see Brother James before he was allowed to leave. The perverted bastard took the opportunity to to call him his pet name again, the Stephen, my clever boy, which is the words that he would always use right before abusing him. And then he proceeded to tell him that he isn't to tell anyone how they do things at St. William's. He flat out told him that if he told anyone, he, w- he could possibly end up back there, or worse, dead. Stephen was all too happy to tell him, don't fucking worry, I'm not going to tell anybody. He had no idea. At this point in time, the headmaster has no idea that Stephen's been telling people all along. Nobody just gives a shit. So he's like, fuck you. What's the point in me even telling you, telling on you now? Because I just want the hell out of here. So he packed his bags in what felt like literal seconds and jumped into the back seat of the, so- or the, the uh, passenger seat of the social worker's car, never even looked back. And however, he knew that what had happened to him there would live on with him forever. And he flat out told the social worker who was telling him, um, who was taking him. He didn't really know where he was going. He just knew that he had aged out. And he's like, listen, you all know what's going on. You just don't want to hear it. And he's laughing. He's like, you think that St. Williams is a safe place, but yet you know that they're interfering with us. You know it's happening right now, what they're doing to us. And she literal, literally said, the only way anyone can do anything about it is if they have absolute proof. No one is going to believe a bunch of damaged children. And that was that. He was taken to his own bed sit, as he called it, at the back of a pet shop, and he was given a job at a flour mill because by now he was a big, strong boy, and his job was to haul around heavy flour bags. He got them 25 pounds per week. He was grateful to have his own place and making his own money. He could make his own decisions. He could buy his own clothes. He could do whatever the fuck he wanted to do, and he was ready. His only complaint is that the animals of the pet shop were very loud at night. 
And he really enjoyed, he talked in the book about how he really enjoyed the owners of the pet shop. They were very nice people. So he's finally free. He's finally safe. He's got his own key to his own door and he can shut it and lock it and shut people out as much as he wants. Hold on a second while I take a drink. About a year after moving into the pet shop, he runs into his brother Andrew at a bus stop. Now, of course, he has to like remind him like, oh my gosh, are you, are you Andrew? And he reminds him like, yeah, I'm Steven. Andrew was really cold to him and acted like he wanted nothing to do with him. He said that he lived, uh, Andrew was like, well, yeah, I live with Mary and the others. And Stephen realized, wow, you know what? I still hate you. I still hate that even though they were probably abused as well as children, and that's why they were also taken into care, um, I still hate that you never fucking told anybody about me, about what was going on with me in that basement. And I really fucking hate that you're acting like a cold little douchebag to me right now. So he's like, okay, guess I'll see you around. Andrew's like, sure. And Stephen never saw anyone else from his family after that. He moved to a place in Dobshire because, like I said, the, the noise was too much for him. And he became a regular at a local pub. Now keep in mind, he's 18 years old with significant untreated childhood trauma. He smoked a lot of cigarettes. Uh, the cigarettes were given to him at the boys' home. That's where he learned how to smoke because he would, like, do extra stuff for staff members and they would give them cigarettes as treats. So, I mean, 70s were a wild time. Um, but he also started drinking more. And, um, and But he was going to work, you know. Well, it was in one of these, he was hanging out a lot in biker bars. And it was in one of these biker bars that he meets a woman named Lucy. Now, he enjoyed being a part of a big, bad biker gang. He loved listening to heavy metal. Um, he was first introduced to that in the school, and the words of the songs resonated with him, you know. He also just loved wearing leathers, being a part of a biker gang, listening to music like this because he knew that others would disapprove of this, and that suited him. He knew that, that this would make him an outcast, and that was okay, because he was sick and tired of doing what everybody else made him do or wanted him to do. He was his own man finally, and the rest of the world could fuck off. He got tattoos, he grew his hair long, and I'm here for this. I'm, I'm loving his transformation here. So he meets Lucy, you know, after getting his leathers and getting tatted up and drinking the booze, and within a couple of months, Lucy and him become pregnant. Now, this wasn't a surprise to Stephen because they were definitely taking risks. And he wasn't really ready to be a father, but he also wasn't about to abandon his child. So he and Lucy got a house together and they tried to settle down into a normal life. But think about it. Stephen does not know what a normal life is. He doesn't know what it's like to be a part of a family. He doesn't know these things. He's never had that opportunity. He did get a better paying job as a butcher to support Lucy and his daughter, Debbie, who was born when he was 19. He really struggled to settle down. Um, he said he loved Debbie, his daughter, but he still wanted to enjoy freedom and to party. And he admits that he left Lucy alone a lot early in um, their relationship 
for his life for so that he could enjoy his life and his newfound freedom. So Stephen is a big dude. He's tall, he's large, and he's in a biker gang. So, of course, he becomes known as the big burly bastard that uh, if you've got a problem that you need solved, Stephen can solve it for you. So he's not proud of this, but he says that back then he wasn't a nice person at all. And his reputation in, his, in the biker gang was a perfect outlet for his pent-up aggression and anger from childhood. And I can see that. I don't fault any of this. All of this tracks, right? So he got into a lot of fights. A lot. He drank a lot. He smoked a lot. Lucy and Stephen became pregnant again just two years after Debbie was born, and his second daughter, Natalie, was born. He got an even better job making kitchen cabinets for a company, and they were doing better financially. But then his next job was at a latex factory, and it did pay even more than the cabinet job. And this at the latex factory is where he suffered his first flashbacks. See, the latex factory sold rubber sheets, and they were the same that were used at Aston Hall, the ones in the treatment room by Dr. Milner. Then one day, a co-worker was using a, lo- a mouth lozenge, lozenge, I always have trouble with that word, lozenge, a mouth lozenge, and one day, because he had a sore throat, Stephen smelled it and had to run to the bathroom thinking he's going to be sick because the smell was the same chemical that Dr. Milner in Aston Hall had used in that metal mask that he would put on his victims' um, faces called ether. He had horrendous flashbacks and night terrors at this point in time from his past. He loved his daughters, but he says in his words that he was selfish and spent a lot of time away. Lucy being home with the kids all the time grew old for her too. Absolutely. Now one day, Stephen suffered a terrible workplace accident where his arm, his leg, and his shoulder were all shattered when a pallet that was hanging above him fell on top of him due to a chain snapping. Now, the doctors were able to save his legs by pins and rods, but he woke up in in intensive care, and he was in the hospital for months. Lucy never came to see him. She never brought the children to see him. He didn't blame her, but he knew being in the hospital for that many months and her never coming to to see him meant that their relationship was over. So he moved out of the house, and he ended up meeting a person shortly after that, who would be his first wife, Lorraine, in 1985, when he was 24 years old. They married two years later, and he described her as everything that he wasn't. She was kind, she was gentle, they were in love. He got a job working in steel by a man named Dave. Now Dave ends up becoming the father figure in Stephen's life that he never had. Dave just had one rule, no fighting. Dave was a big, hard man, but he gave people that no one else in the world would a chance. So he knew he would take kind of the broken people of the world. Dave himself had been in care when he found out that Stephen had been in care. That's immediately when he offered him a job. Um, And he liked to give them chances to do better and to make something of themselves. At this point in time, Steve was making so much money that he felt rich. Him and Lorraine actually had money to blow. And Lorraine soon became pregnant with their son, Simon, in 1991. 
Now, at this point in time, he is ready to be a father. He wanted to be the father that he wasn't for his girls. With the help of Dave, he cut back on drinking. He kept his ass home with his wife and child. And then they would go on to have two more sons named Oliver and Jacob. Now, his children were the center of his world. He learned how to be a family man. And in the book, he says that he's proud to say that he never once raised his hand or his voice to his children. Now, um, at this part in the story, he is about 30 years old, and he is still hanging around some of those bad influences once in a while. Okay, He's gotten his stuff together, but he still has some of those ties to the biker gang. He ended up getting pulled into a, a bar fight. The next Monday, Dave comes up, and Dave's a big man. Now, Steve's a big man, but Dave's a really big bear of a man. And he comes up and punches him square in the face. And, of course, this kind of hurts Steve's feelings and pride. Like, why? I mean, he thinks of him as a father. Like, why are you doing this? He says, I know you got into a fight. I told you no fighting. You need to cut off that group of friends. You need to, to knock this off. And Dave was right. He basically, like, slapped him back into reality of, you're, you are absolutely right. This is a slippery slope. And so at that point in time, he gave up his biker group of friends and he even gave up his license so that he would not be tempted to drive his bike around and get pulled back into that life. Um, Steve, Stephen said in his book that he never let Dave down again and that many years later, tragically, Dave passed away of cancer and that they still miss him in their life to this day. Now, eight years into his marriage with Lorraine, uh, Steve realizes they've never even had a fight. I actually like how it's worded in the book. They've never had a row. I, I want to call it that from now on. So they'd never had a row because they were just way better friends than they were marriage partners. And at the same time, Steve and Lorraine had met a hairdresser slash bartender named Gail. All three of them were friends. But the fact of the matter is, Steve and Gail were soulmates right from the first meeting. And he's not proud of this, but they did engage in an affair. And they did come clean to Lorraine. and She wasn't even upset. As a matter of fact, the three of them remain good friends to this day. It was 1996, and he was 35 years old when he met Gail, his second and final wife. He describes her in the book as being gorgeous, his soulmate in, ever, as ever, in every sense of the word. She is his intellectual equal, and they have many common interests. They moved in together nine months after dating, and eventually Gail got pregnant and gave birth to their daughter Jessica. When Jessica was five years old, they decided to get married. He's still very close with Lorraine, and they shared the boys, their three boys together, without issue. A short while after Jessica was born, uh, Stephen had been suffering some from some back issues. Let me try talking again. Stephen had been suffering from some back issues, which he figured were from the time that he was put in intensive care due to his father beating him so badly with the edge of the spade. Well, the doctor comes in, ended up needing to leave the room, but he left his chart there. So, like all humans, he gets a little nosy and he takes a little peek peek at his chart. And what he read completely blew him away. He realizes that he had been brought to that hospital at just 18 months old for a head fracture that he had suffered. He 
He had learned from that chart that his early childhood, before he was capable of creating memories, had been full of abuse, and it was documented by professionals, and no one had done anything about it. Remember the divot that was in his head after his first haircut, and the voice in his head asking if he had ever been hit by his father before? Well, he had. He had suffered severe head trauma. He also learned that he had tuberculosis as a toddler. Now, TB was most prone to transient, the transient population because they live in damp and dark places, just like his cellar. That's where TB can thrive. This means that he had been in the cellar, even as a toddler. There was no mention in the chart of the other broken bones or of him being taken into care and why. So this prompted him to call social services and ask for all of his records. Weirdly, he was told that all of his records had been destroyed and that it was unfortunate, but that it sometimes happened. His lawyer informed him mm, that it's illegal for them to destroy records before his death. So, right from the beginning, Stephen thinks, I think there's a fox in the hen house. So he set, him, set himself up with a Facebook account, and he joined a group of others who had been survivors of St. William's. The group was formed, he learned, so that legal action could be taken against St. William's and that they could all stay in contact. I'm happy to tell you that in 2016, Brother James, real name James Carragher, and Anthony McCollum, who was known as the Black Spider, were convicted of a total of 35 sexual offenses against boys in their care between 1970 and 1991. Now, you know, as well as I do, that there are far more than 35 offenses that were committed. But this is all that could be proven, especially considering just Stephen himself were taken for in, into Brother James' office multiple times a week. James was given a sentence of nine years and McCollum a sentence of 15 years. By the time he learned all this, this was the third time that Brother James had been sent to prison for sexual offenses against children in his life. The first one was in 1993, where he was given a sentence of seven years, and then again in 2004, when he was given a 14-year sentence. Both men denied 87 allegations against them in 2016 from their time working in St. Williams, which has been closed since 1992. They will have to serve at least half their sentences before being, being eligible for parole. They were both in their 60s in 2016 when they were sentenced. Hopefully they will fucking die in there and rot. Uh, I'm happy to tell you that Stephen went on to be in a band and he plays at various festivals. Um, his band name is Captain Starfighter and the Lockheeds, and he is still the lead singer today. They go all over the world playing in festivals. And he actually said, too, if he could play at free festivals, that's what he would like to do. Money doesn't mean anything to him. He just thinks of it as a means to an end. And so if he could share his love of music for free to people, he would. But free festivals rarely exist anymore. He also told a story about in 2011 when a woman named Stephanie Smith knocked on his door. Now, when he answered, they kind of had a laugh over how similar their names were, Stephanie and Stephen Smith. But she asked him if he had a daughter named Natalie. And 
Keep in mind, by 2011, he had not seen his children since they were three and one. So he had always wondered about where they were and if they were happy. He had convinced himself that they had been better off without him with the way that he was then. Now, Stephanie says, I had a convo with a girl named, a conversation with a girl named Natalie who had been ringing up all S. Smiths in the area to see if they are her father. So she provides him with her number. Natalie was 21 at the time. And Stephen calls her up, and they form a relationship, a really strong relationship. They met at least every week to stay in touch with one another and be in each other's lives. And he also met her boyfriend, who he was very fond of. Six months after reuniting, Natalie, Natalie delights in telling him that she was expecting a baby and that he was going to be a grandpa. He was overjoyed, and they all began planning the next chapter of their lives. Months passed, and one Sunday morning, Steve gets a knock at the door. A couple of police officers are standing there and have to give him the news that all parents fear from the moment that they become parents. His daughter Natalie had been in a horrific car accident with friends the night before they went to see the mo- went to the movies. She had been killed. All the people in her car had been killed. She was five months pregnant. I know what you're thinking. How the hell can one person have to suffer so much pain and anguish? And I wish I had that answer. He got one beautiful year with Natalie before she was taken so tragically and suddenly from him. And there was no one to blame. The police did a full investigation into the crash and determined that it was no one's fault. It was just a horrific accident. The people in the other vehicle were all very seriously injured as well. But this trauma spurred horrible night terrors and images um, for him. Images of him being locked in a cellar, needles coming at him from Dr. Milliner and what had happened to him, uh, priests and monks, everything. They're just swirling around. He realizes with Gail's help that he needs to seek some counseling. And he does go through a series of assessments um, part of his assessments, actually, that were done were done um, for the legal cases that he ends up helping to spear forward against some of the people that did the, these terrible things to him. But he learned through getting the proper psychological treatment that he was suffering from PTSD and a rare disorder called dissociative identity disorder. And it was caused by all the trauma in his earlier life. We don't really know exactly which trauma because he had sustained such trauma. But dissociative identity disorder is the brain's way of disconnecting from what's happening to you, which is why when he was in the cellar, a voice would speak to him in the third person. Remember how I told you that? And he thought that everyone had a voice like that. That was actually him disassociating him. This is happening to someone else. That's the brain's way of coping and coaxing you through this because that voice would tell him whenever he was getting severely beaten, you, you can get through this. You are strong. He was disassociating from what was happening. On October 28th, 2013, he was interviewed by a, a doctor who was considered a lead doctor of this, the um, nation at the time. And um, this doctor 
was responsible for writing a report for Stephen's lawyers to to use in court, okay? That report said that Stephen will always struggle with interpersonal relationships and always have a general mistrust of people, especially people in authority. Finally, for him, someone was recognizing and validating what he had been through. And although he is given coping skills through counseling, there is nothing that's going to cure or take any of this away or the effects that it's had, that that abuse has done to him. But a few years ago, Gail and Stephen decided that being homeowners was not for them. Uh, the wall, the con- being confined to one place, you know, Stephen had kind of had enough of that. So in a therapeutic move, they bought a motorhome and traveled. And at the same time, he built them a houseboat. And so now they live on a houseboat and he can just float to wherever he wants. He'll never be trapped in one place ever again. He paints on his boat. He actually painted his boat itself. And people took notice, asking if they could buy some of his pieces. Today, he makes money not only singing, but also through his art. It sells all over the world. He did artwork for the band Iron Maiden, and he actually did it for free. It was like these two big Egyptian pillars, and he just asked them to pay for the shipping because it was really expensive. And now he does album covers and book covers. He even painted a tank once. So he gives a lot of his paintings away for charities. It does not matter how long it takes him to finish a piece. He sells everything at a reasonable price because he believes that art should be accessible to everyone, no matter where they come from in life. And he does not like putting a price on art to begin with. Um, One day he was on his houseboat eating lunch when a news program, program came on about Aston Hall the mental hospital, and he learned that a woman named Barbara O'Hare had written a book about her time in Aston Hall and that she had been injected with a chemical called so- sodio, excuse me, sodium amytal, which is a truth serum, while she was there, and she was the whistleblower on Aston Hall and begged for people to come forward. Hundreds of uh, hundreds came forward, And they also had a Facebook group that Steve joined. He reached out to Barb herself, and she encouraged Steve to write his book. Police investigated Aston Hall, and it was determined that Dr. Milner had carried out abuse on both boys and girls and performed drug experiments on them, mostly with the sodium amytal, the truth serum. Now, Dr. Milner died in 1976, so he couldn't be held accountable. I want you to think about that date. Stephen left Aston Hall May 17, 1976. So literally that same year, that fucking disgusting pervert died, and he never knew it. Other staff members were not held accountable due to many of the kids being drugged and not really knowing for sure which staff staff members did what, and many had already died. So just knowing that the investigation was done and validation for these victims was recognized by the public and authorities did help in some way. In total, the police interviewed 114 victims, and there were at least 77 crimes reported. After After Barbara O'Hare's book, was released, 
another 43 people, including Stephen, came forward. They're all being told that the Department of Social Services will be giving them compensation for what the what Kenneth Milner had put them through. He did what he called uh, what what Milner was doing was called narcoanalysis, which involves interviewing patients under a drug induced state to learn their deepest, darkest secrets and provide treatment based on the answers under the drug's effects. Yet for him, he took that time to also sexually abuse the children. He was illegally drugging children, some as young as 12, raping them and abusing them. Some children had only been given treatment once or even once in a while. But Stephen and 19 other boys had been extensively experimented on and sexually abused. Most likely the boys with parents who would never have them back. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I wanted to say a little bit more about that. I do think that because of Stephen's situation, it made him more vulnerable because they knew that Stephen's parents were never getting him back. He wasn't going to be returned to their home. He would age out of the system. Him and the other children like him made him the most vulnerable. He believes that Milner was trying to find the perfect truth serum to be used in interrogation purposes. However, only two other boys aside from him, himself have been able to be traced, but they know that there are more. Some have died, but others are still out there, and that was what Stephen's main motivation for writing the book was, so that others who may have suffered the way that he did could come forward. And he wanted to, wants to help others who may not have been in Aston Hall or St. Williams, but have suffered anything that has come, you know, come close to that. There's Many other facilities just like this that have the same things going on. He wants them to know that they can come forward, they can survive and be all right. He's happy today living with Gail and taking each day as it comes. I want to end um, on his own words from a BBC article. He said, quote, I'm not going to spend my life being a depressed lunatic just because of what happened to me. Otherwise, the people who hurt you have won. If they knew they had screwed up my life, it would be another victory for them. But I'm not willing to let them win. End quote. Dab it up, bro. Right on. So there is the story of Stephen Smith and his horrific early childhood and teenage experiences. I, I Let me know what you guys think. Um, I cannot, there's so much that I could that I could say, we know we've talked on this podcast before about those homes and how terrible that they are. But just to hear one survivor's story, I, I, you know that this is only a small piece of it. You know, there's so many thousands and thousands more stories out there like this. And it's almost too much to, to fathom, frankly. So anyway, yes, I hope that he continues to do really well. And um, let's move on to a brain bath, shall we? And I'm currently trying to find it. I had copy and pasted. Oh, hold on. my my. There we go. There we go. My computer had to think for a second. Okay. So last month... I did a brain bath on confessions. 
And I happened to, after I was done with the episode, I found another one that was pretty funny. So I wanted to add it on and just do it for, for the general audience as well. And I'm going to read you. So these are all just like random, you know, confessions from people. This one says, one time in sixth grade, I was being bullied really badly. And this whole circle of people gathered around me and the girl that was bullying me uh, me oh, gathered around me and the girl who was bullying me and she smirked and went you dumb rich bitch and everyone was like oh I stood there for a second pulled out $20 on my wallet placed it in her hand and said buy some better insults I swear the entire lunchroom rioted that's actually a really good one I like that so this next one Oh my fucking God, all week my dad has been yelling at me about eating his fruit snacks and I promised him I wouldn't eat any of them and I was in the bathroom getting a lady product and he heard the rapper opening and, oh, he heard the, <laughs> he heard the rapper opening and screamed, I know you're eating my fruit snacks. He busted in the door and grabbed it out of my hand and walked all the way to his room before realizing that he had just taken a pad out of his 15-year-old menstruating daughter's hand. Um, why is your dad so protective about his fruit snacks? Does he not know that he could just buy himself a box and put them in his room out of the reach of other children? I do say other children because clearly this man is a man-child. My God. Let's see. Let's find another one here. So my friend's dog died, and she lives in New York City. And so she had to take it to the vet by the subway, and she put the dead dog in a suitcase on the subway. And it was a pretty big dog. Some dude saw that she was struggling with the suitcase, so he asked if she needed help with it. And he said, do you mind me asking what's in it? And she didn't want to say dead dog, so she said that it was a bunch of laptops. So he took the suitcase and ran. Oh my God, he stole her dead dog, which also would really upset me and piss me off. But then could you imagine when he opens it and there's a dead dog inside instead of laptops? Oh, shoot. Oh my gosh, this one starts with the first time someone tried to steal my bag in the subway. Jesus. The first time? What are the other times like? I panicked and I broke his arm with an umbrella. And since since then, none of my friends will let me forget about this. If you think this was a badass moment, you need to remember that I'm five feet. My bag was a lucky star bag and I was crying while hitting someone much bigger than me repeatedly with a frog-shaped umbrella. <laughs> Dude, like, no, you're my hero. That is fucking awesome. Like, way to go. Let's see. <laughs> okay. My biggest secret is, this is actually genius. My biggest secret is one time at a party, I scared the shit out of everyone by chugging a whole bottle of vodka. And everyone was scared as shit and just screaming at me to stop because I hadn't really drank that much before. And when I was done before and when I was done since we all were so drunk they put me on their shoulders like a king and started chanting my name now everyone still to this day thinks I'm a fucking hard-ass bitch and everyone was shocked that I could take so much 
but it's all a lie because I replaced it with water and that is my biggest secret. I actually really, really like that. Oh. Okay, now I have a confession of my own, everyone. Do you remember the brain bath from part one of this case um, about the poor lady who doesn't fart in front of her husband and who farted and her husband woke up and thought it was the dog, right? Right? I'm here to confess to you all that I lied. A listener did not write that in. Technically, a listener did. It just also happens to be the person running this podcast because that was me. It was me, everyone. I am the phantom farter. I let my dog Maggie take the heat. I'm not proud. But I thought that I needed to get that confession out there. That that is the biggest lie that I have ever told to my darling husband. Was that it was not the dog who woke him up just to make him sniff her fart. It was the dog trying to save his life from me, who had had some bad Mexican that day. I'm good now. As you can see, I'm alive and well. And, and now you all know. And it's even more funny because my husband doesn't listen to this podcast, so he'll never know. All right, you guys, I hope you enjoyed these uh, two parts. And I hope if you're interested in joining Patreon, please do so at patreon.com slash crime curious podcast. Any level, level the three, five or $10 a month, they all get you different things. All right, I will talk. See you guys next time. Talk to you later and uh, stay safe out there. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>